0: We continue in our series through the Gospel of Mark. If you're a guest with us or if you are newer with us, we've been doing a verse by verse journey through the Gospel of Mark. We began on Easter Sunday, and currently this morning we are on Mark chapter 7 in verse 24. And I would encourage you to turn there with me in your Bible, Mark chapter 7. Beginning in verse twenty-four, and then also we're going to look in Matthew chapter fifteen, verse twenty-one. It's the same story, but through the eyes of a different eyewitness on on how he accounted what Jesus is, does and encounters with this woman. And this morning, the story we're going to look at can be a bit perplexing at times. Uh, we love to think of Jesus as being very caring and very approachable, as he is. We see that throughout Scripture this is one of those stories that when we read Scripture that can easily lead us to think that this is a moment where he doesn't necessarily appear to be caring or appear to be compassionate or approachable. But I believe that it's a story that many of us can find encouragement from as we dig into it this morning and allow God to speak to us and allow him to challenge our hearts. In fact, I believe that for many here this morning... You've been in a place of waiting. You've been in a season of, of, of persevering, of waiting for an answer to specifically a prayer that you've had. Perhaps it's been specifically for healing, that there's been a lingering issue that you've been, you've presented to God and you've really re- even reached a point. You've said, okay, God, I have presented it to you now. I'm just going to kind of walk in it and walk it out. But you've been in a space of, of really needing an answer. Perhaps it's been a prolonged struggle, a pro- prolonged delay that can be mentally wearisome and that can impact your faith. And I truly believe this morning that as we begin to look at this story and this encounter of a foreign woman with Jesus and how Jesus ultimately brings a miracle into her life and brings freedom to her daughter, that I believe that it's a story that God can use to begin to increase your faith. And I would encourage you this morning to begin to pray even now. Say, God, raise my level of expectancy. Raise my level of faith. That's been my prayer throughout the weekend, thinking about this morning and even our Wednesday night prayer service. Our focus was, God, increase our faith. Increase our faith. Increase our willingness and our hunger to receive from you. And the picture that came to mind this, this past weekend as I was thinking and praying about it is that faith is almost like an extended hand waiting to receive. And I have found that it's far easier to receive something when my hand is already extended, ready for someone to place something in it. That when I'm standing there with my hand in my pocket and I'm kind of not really ready, and I'm just thinking, okay, yeah, I'd, I'd like to have this or I'd like to have that, I'm not really showing that I'm ready to receive. But if I come and I say, I would, I would like to receive this thing, I'm already positioned to receive That faith is a position of being ready to receive, to receive what God can possibly do, to lean on the potential of of what he has consistently revealed himself to be through Scripture. It doesn't matter about the circumstances that you're facing or the mountain that may be in front of you. It doesn't matter how long it's been there. It doesn't matter how long the delay has been. It doesn't matter how long the issue is that you've been facing. That in a moment, as we come in faith before God, that in faith, He can transform a moment, and He can bring freedom and transformation and life and hope as we put our hearts upon Him. So I would encourage you this morning to pray and ask God to begin to increase your faith. And then at the end of service... We're going to end by having our leadership available, some of the prayer team available, and we're just going to be here available across the front, and we're going to end with a time of anointing and prayer. And that if you need prayer this morning, don't leave without having someone agree with you in prayer for healing, but also for those who are in need of answers for a matter of other things. But let's look together in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse number 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence a secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, the woman who's, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all that they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. And as I'd mentioned, these, uh, the, the gospel accounts, many of the stories you will find in any number of the gospels, whether it be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, different accounts of some of the same eyewitness accounts of what Jesus has done. And so in Matthew's account, we have the same story, but I'd like to do is to look at it there this morning as well. If you'll look with me in Matthew chapter 15, verse number 21. And what I would like to do this morning, oftentimes I will give you a number of applications. I'll give you a number of points that you can take and jot down and and then really extract from the story. But I'd like to do this morning a little bit different. Rather than giving you points of application or giving you points to write down, I'd like to just read this story verse by verse and to deposit each verse and talk about it for a little bit. And I believe there's some observations and, and some applications that we can walk away from just by looking verse by verse to this story. So beginning in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Just pause there for a moment. It says Jesus withdrew. You'll see it on the screen. Jesus withdrew. Earlier in Mark, when we read it, it says that Jesus went to a region and specifically hid himself away. He had an intent of keeping his presence a secret. And I would imagine that each person here has been at a place or a moment, or if you haven't been, you're in it now, that you've been at a place or a moment where it would seem as if you're in a dry season, a a space in your life, a space in your journey, that there's a distance or a dryness that has crept in your relationship with God. And you've been there and you're, you're seeking God. Perhaps you've been praying, you've been calling out to Him and there's a, there's a distance that seems to have crept in. That as you pray, you don't feel like your prayers are going anywhere. That when you call out to God, you don't feel like there's an answer. That when you're reading in scripture, you're, you're reading and you're not finding anything that's speaking to you and speaking into the moment. That in those moments you don't sense his nearness, that it would seem as if, just as we read about Jesus in this moment, that he has withdrawn, that he has hidden away, that he has withdrawn his presence and wants to keep it a secret. It's in those times that it would seem as if God has hidden His face from you. And it's in those times that I believe God can use in my life and that He will use them in your life to cause in us to withdraw from Him or rather to cause us to become all the more desperate for Him. That is one of the two choices. In those moments of dryness, those moments where there's no answer, there's moments where you see no visible sign of God working, that we have two responses. We can either withdraw and say, well, this isn't going anywhere, this isn't happening, this isn't taking place, I'll try this another time, or we can allow it to awaken within us a desperation and a hunger and a passion for the presence of God, independent of how we feel or independent of the answer that you may see or not see. See, it's in your darkest hour that presents God the opportunity to shine the brightest, It's in your darkest moment that presents him with the ability to reveal himself the greatest. We love the stories of miracles. We love talking about miracles. We love talking about how God transforms and how he brings healing. But what we fail to forget is that every miracle requires a problem. Every miracle requires a problem. Every miracle begins as a problem. Every miracle begins as a circumstance or a situation that we would not go looking for in and of ourselves. There's something that causes us to pursue and desire God all the more. It could be in a a storm in your life. It could be in a place of doubt. It could be in a place of question. It could be a place of, of lingering, a place of no answer, a place of lack. It could be a place where you haven't seen Him work. But it's in those moments that He invites us to trust Him and pursue Him in spite of what we see or feel. Those moments when it seems as if Jesus has withdrawn and it's an, it's an important truth for you and I to remember this morning when we think about this and we read this story. It's important for us to continually center our minds on the truth that while God's visible presence may not be seen or felt in the circumstances that you're facing, that God is still working, that God is still in control, that He's still present and He's still active See, in the story both in Matthew and Mark we've looked at both accounts both make it very clear that Jesus has withdrawn Jesus has hidden his presence away and yet there's still an incredible miracle to, that takes place it's so incredible that even in this midst of being withdrawn this midst of being in the midst of being tucked away such an incredible miracle takes place that it's still, it's recorded in history for you and I to remember That in the midst of moments when his presence may be hidden, he is still very active. Let's read on. Verse number 22. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed and suffering terribly. The story tells us that as soon as she hears that Jesus is there, that she comes looking for him. In Mark's gospel, it says the moment she heard that Jesus' presence was there, that she came in pursuit of him. I think that's a reminder for you and me that, that God's presence transforms a moment. God's presence always transforms a moment. That when you begin to get a sense and a stirring of what God's doing, then throw yourself into that, pursue what it is that he's doing. This woman comes in pursuit of Jesus. And verse 22 says she comes and she presents this need of her daughter, and it says that her daughter is suffering terribly. I would imagine that most here have had moments or spaces where you're going through a hardship, you're going through a hard thing, you're going through a difficulty, and someone wants to come up and they talk to you and they ask you how you're doing, and you may not give the typical answer of saying, Oh, I'm fine, thanks. How are you? And when you try to put into words what it is you're going through, those words seem to fall so short and empty of really capturing what it is that you're facing. It could be a sickness you've been dealing with. It could be whatever it might be. But the words that you use to try to tell your friend or to tell that person who cares about it are empty and short of capturing really how you're feeling. I think that's what this mom has to be feeling when she says, my daughter is suffering terribly. Two small words. My daughter is suffering terribly. Two small words to describe such a significant issue. She says her child, her daughter, is demon-possessed. If you'll remember from the stories we've looked at already in the Gospel of Mark, that there's times where Jesus has encountered a man who is demon-possessed. In Mark chapter 5, he comes and he encounters this man who is living among the tombs. And the things that we remember about this man are that he he was so possessed that people were afraid to be near him. That there were, he couldn't rest day or night. That he constantly was screaming out in torment. That there was agony inwardly, agony outwardly. He was bound inwardly. Men trying to bind him outwardly. If you remember that he was cutting himself and trying, it was self-harming and seeking to destroy himself. Later in Mark 10, we're going to look at another story of a father who comes on behalf of his son who is demon-possessed. And that father says that the demon continues to throw his son into the fire to try to kill him. To picture all of these things taking place with this little girl, the mom comes to Jesus and says, my daughter's suffering terribly. Two words giving such a powerful picture. Her daughter is in agony. Not only is the daughter in agony, but the mom is in agony, that she's been suffering terribly. The mom is identified as a Canaanite, a foreigner, a woman not of Israel. We'll talk about that more in a moment in the story itself. But it's probably safe to assume that she may be very well married to someone who is a foreigner as well. And if her husband is a foreigner, not a follower of of God, that he is a worshiper of the Canaanite gods, the Canaanite religions, any number of those gods that they would have worshipped, they would have had priests who have been offering their own solutions, their own answers, their own ways to try to deal with this, all these different remedies that failed short, all of these different ways to restrain and to deal with this demon, to deal with this possession. The child has been suffering in any number of ways for any number of years, and the mom has been in agony watching her child suffer. And she comes to Jesus. She's desperate. And I think the mother is a reminder to you and to me this morning that desperate people do desperate things. Desperate people do desperate things. History tells us this. Our lives tell us this. Our community can tell us this. Desperate people do, def- do desperate things from the history pages it tells us that in the 16th century Oliver Cromwell ordered that an english soldier would be shot for a cowardly crime the execution was set to take place at the evening bell but at the appointed time no sound came from the belfry the investigators went to find out what had happened why the the bell had not tolled so that the execution did not take place and they found that a girl who was engaged to be to the marry to the man Who was condemned had climbed into the bell tower and had wrapped herself and clung to the giant clapper of the bell to prevent it from striking. They found her there with her hands bleeding and torn to shreds. She was desperate to do something for the one that she loved. And that's what we see with this mom. She's desperate to do something for the one that she loves. She's desperate. She's desperate and she comes to Jesus. But I want you to notice two things about this woman as she comes to Jesus and this place that she comes. First thing she does about this woman is in her desperation. She comes and she's. She, I want you to notice her position. Her position is one of absolute and total dependence. The story tells us she comes and she falls at the feet of Jesus, that she is absolutely dependent upon the mercy of of Jesus. She realizes she's not deserving. She knows that she is not deserving of an answer from Jesus. She knows she's a foreigner. She knows Jesus is trying to be tucked away. She knows any number of things, and she knows that she's not deserving of this. She's completely dependent upon Jesus, and her position reveals that. And I think that's a reminder for you and me that really when it comes to this place of being dependent upon Jesus for everything, isn't isn't that the story of God's grace? That's the story of his grace in our lives, that we are desperately dependent upon Jesus for everything. That there is nothing in us that is deserving of the grace of God. There is nothing in us that is deserving of his goodness. We're not deserving of his answers. We're not deserving of, of his healing. We're not deserving of his forgiveness. But in his grace and in his mercy and in his love, he offers it all. That we're never deserving of anything. But rather, we, we come to God from a position of absolute and total dependence, and I think her position also reveals uh, her humility. She's not afraid to become undignified. She's not afraid to come and to kneel in a place where she she's, realizes she's not accepted. She's not she's not welcome. Jesus was hidden away, and she's not willing. She's not afraid to face rejection. She's absolutely and totally dependent. Secondly, I want you to notice is her petition. Her petition, she says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed and suffering terribly. She says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. She's making a declaration of Christ's messiahship, of his lordship, and she's really declaring or shouting out a statement that even many Jews at this moment were afraid to make of Jesus. But she's not afraid to, to come and in this petition to, to identify and acknowledge Jesus' lordship. And she says, have mercy. What she's identifying is she says, I have a need that's bigger than me. I have a need that's so much bigger than me. I have no answer, no solution, no way of getting an answer. That I am completely and totally desperate and dependent upon you. She pleads not from a position or merit of good standing. Not that she is, is deserving of it. But merely comes and demonstrates the very one thing that she needs. And that's mercy. That She needs an answer. She needs something from Jesus that only Jesus can provide. And I believe this woman, the the posture of her heart gives us a picture of what Jesus describes in Luke chapter 18. Jesus is describing two men coming, and he gives sort of a parable-like story, probably something he had seen take place before. But he gives a story of two men who come to the temple to pray. This is one's a Pharisee, one's a religious man. And he comes and he, if you look in Luke 18, you'll see the story. He, he comes and he comes in all of his pomp and circumstance and he's there and he comes and he stands before God, stands to present his, his request and, and he says, I've done this and I've done that and I'm so good and I'm so this, I'm so that. If you go through that story and circle all the times that he says, "I," ah, you'll be amazed. So it's all focused on how good he is, how deserving he is of God to answer, how deserving he is to have and his prayer answered. And then Jesus says another man slips in, a tax collector, someone who is despised and looked down upon, someone who everyone who was listening would say, that is a man who is not worthy. That he comes and he comes to that same place of prayer and it says that he won't even look to heaven. He He so utterly recognizes his need for mercy and he beats his breast and he says, he begins to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says of those two men, it's the one, the second one who, who receives the answer. And it's a reminder, just like we see with this woman, that any time we come before God, regardless of how big or small or significant or any number of things that we come before Him with, we can't forget that it rests upon His nature. It rests upon His mercy. It rests upon His grace. It rests upon His goodness. It's not a matter of how many times you've been to church not a matter of how many times you've read your Bible through. Not a matter of how long you've been a member. How good you've been this past week. Everything is dependent upon the grace and the mercy of God. And I think quite easy, the longer as we go around church, I've shared with you, I've grown up in church. I've grown up around church that there were times when, when you know, try to find different ways to stay home. And I go to my dad and I say, dad, I'm feeling sick tonight. I probably should stay home. He goes, great, you can go to church. We can pray for you. There were times we'd live in the basement of the church as my parents were missionaries in Alaska and a snowstorm would come and no one else is coming to church. I'm like, I probably should cancel church Like, No, we're still going to have church. And we'd go and me, my brother and sister and mom would sit on the front row. No one else is there, have church. But just sometimes we can get in the church rhythm, the church rhythm of life. And in that rhythm, we can, I think sometimes subconsciously begin to lean on how good we are, how clean we've become or all that we do or how much we get involved with or all these things. That we begin to look to our own rightness, our own way of doing things. And in some way in our minds, there's this element of of leaning upon that goodness and forgetting to remember that it all comes down to the mercy and grace of God. And that's why this morning, if you're here, whether you've, you've been here, you could be a founding member of this church. Or you could be a first time walking in. That this morning, you have the privilege of standing before God just like anyone else complete forgiveness, complete rightness before him as we place our faith in Christ. That Jesus makes it clear. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. He says, those who are desperate find the answer. Those who are hungry are the ones that I fill. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And whenever I hear Jesus saying that, in those, and we hear, he'll say it on a number of things, it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. It's when, I, when he says blessed are those, it's what he's identifying is this is the position that God blesses. He says, this is a position that's attractive to God's favor. This is the position of a heart that catches God's eye. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. That this morning, for you and I as we're here, and we're, we'll jump right back into this story in just a moment. But this lady that we're reading and reading about and looking at is a great reminder that each and every one of us, every morning, every moment of our days, that we stand before God in a position of desperation, a position of need. And you might say, what is my need this morning? What is it that I might need that, I, that I'm in a, place, a desperate place this morning? And it's in need of the continued grace of God day in and day out. That there is not a place or a moment in life that we don't need His grace. There's not a place or a moment in life that we don't need his mercy. And quite easy, it's quite easy to grow casual and to forget that. And we can never remember in our relationship with Christ, in our pursuit and following him, that it always comes down to his position and our unconditional need for mercy. That it depends on him alone, not what we're capable of, not what we can do, but on the unconditional mercy of God. Look what happens with this woman when she comes to Jesus. Look in verse 23. Mark chapter 15, verse 23. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. It says Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. She is petitioning Jesus. She's coming before him. She's expressing her need and really expressing a great need in her life, a need that has been probably the most dominant need in her life for a number of years. She comes and she lays on the ground before Jesus. She falls at his feet. She's in a place of desperation, a place of petition. She comes before Jesus. And look at Jesus' answer. He says he answers nothing. Absolute silence. In fact, when Jesus does answer, we'll see it in just a moment, he doesn't answer her. He answers the disciples. But it's as if he's turned a deaf ear to her plea that his heart is numb to the need that she's facing. And I I have to be honest. How many of us, myself included, would reach this point? We have intruded into this space that Jesus wants to be alone with his disciples. We've come and we've gotten desperate. We've gotten down on our knees. We've expressed our need. We've opened our heart and we've presented this, this massive need that's in front of us. Something that has dominated our life and probably robbed you from sleep, robbed you from peace, robbed you from joy. And you come and you present that need to Jesus, and Jesus' reply is no answer. In fact, not only is his reply no answer, the the crowd that's with him say, send her away. Please get rid of her. Please, Please let her go on her way. How many of us in that moment would probably have any number of things going through our mind. I would imagine some might think, isn't isn't this the Jesus that everybody talks about? This is the one that's supposed to be so compassionate, so merciful, so powerful, and yet he he won't even look at my need. He won't even answer my prayer. He won't even answer me. How many of us would possibly be in that place? Or some other thought that might go through our mind to think, why isn't he answering This is the one who should be tender. This is the one who should be compassionate. This is the one who's powerful. Why does he listen to others but not listen to me? And with that, just like that woman, if we were to to look at that moment and say, this is not what I was wanting. This is not what I was looking for. This is not the answer that I thought I'd receive because I'm not getting an answer. I'm not getting anything from Jesus. If she were to get up and to dust her knees off and to regather her dignity and to walk away from Jesus, and ultimately walk away from her miracle. But instead she stays. And I believe that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing in this moment by not answering her. He did not immediately give her the desired answer, but rather because the answer, seemed, the answer that she wanted seemed to be a bit farther away because Jesus was not answering That he brought her to a place of a deeper realization of just how much she needed him and just how dependent she was upon him. He inserted a pause in this moment so that the testing of her faith could be a testimony for us. The testing of her faith became a testimony for us because Jesus paused in this moment. That we can look at it and we can recognize that there are times that God wants to do things in our lives That make others pause and take notice of his faithfulness and his ability and his willingness. But that might mean a pause where you're ready for an answer. A willingness to say, God, I'm going to trust you with the timing even when I don't see the answer. Because I know that you're faithful and I know that you're in control. And it's a reminder to not give up. It's a reminder that our testing and our times of testing can be someone else's testimony. That he can use our lives as a witness and a testimony to others by what he does. It's also a reminder that every answered prayer, every accepted prayer, is not an immediately answered prayer. That every an- accepted prayer is not an immediately answered prayer. I mentioned already on Wednesday nights that, uh, that we commit our time to prayer. And I'll take a little bit of time to, to talk and to teach. And on a number of times, we've looked at Matthew chapter 7. Verses 7 and 8, where Jesus is asking, it will be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, whoever seeks finds, the one who knocks, the door is opened. And it's a reminder that a kingdom principle we've shared on Wednesday nights, a kingdom principle is that prayer is intended to be heard and answered. Prayer is intended to be heard and answered. But it's also a reminder that when it comes to prayer, there's an element of, 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 of pursuing there's an element of dependence. There's an element of, of petitioning and coming and asking. Again, that it speaks to a persistent, repetitive pursuit and desire. That there are times when the answer is directly linked to the persistence with which we ask. And so I would ask you this morning, how many stop one prayer short of the answer? That we stop just one prayer short of what it is that God could potentially do in a circumstance or do in someone's life. It's a willingness to continue to pursue even when the answer has not yet been seen. But I want you to notice something else in Mark chapter 15, verse 23. It says, Jesus didn't answer her, so the disciples came and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Not only did they add to her discouragement by wanting her sent away, they're telling Jesus, please be gone with her. Please send her away. They're wanting her gone for their own comfort. But secondly, somewhere in here, the disciples have become arrogant enough to think that she wants them. She's thinking that in some way they're wanting, she is wanting them because they they say to Jesus, she keeps crying out after us. She didn't come for the disciples, she came for Jesus. She recognized Jesus was her answer. Jesus was the one that she needs. She, she comes as she comes, and they think that she is looking and wanting them, that they were a reminder that time and again, the longer you may be waiting for an answer, the longer you may be waiting for a breakthrough, the longer you may be waiting for God to bring healing, that there's going to naturally be people who come along who are going to share with you what it is that their opinion is of what needs to happen. That there's going to be individuals that are going to come and in some way think that they may be, they are the answer. That I'm sure this woman over the years has tried doctors, she's tried other priests, she's tried counselors, she's tried a number of things. But she knew that Jesus was the one she needed. And she knew that just a, po- just a crumb of the possibility of what Jesus could do could be more than enough than any answer that anyone could provide, including the disciples. That she knew she was there for Jesus and for no one else. And we see this continually throughout the Gospels that there's times in Mark chapter 5 we've looked at, there's a woman who has a perpetual issue of bleeding. Her bleeding won't stop, and she's tried doctors, she's tried everyone else, and everyone has told her, you need this person, and that person, and this person, and that person. And she comes to a place, and she says, the only answer that I have is found in Jesus. And she says, I don't even even need to talk to him. I don't even need him to, to stop and pause and look at me and touch me. If I can just get through the crowd and just get a hymn, of his garment, if I can get just a crumb of the possibility of what Jesus can do, that's all that I need. And we see that she's healed. In the gospel of Mark earlier, we looked at this man who's crippled and his friends come and tear a hole in the roof and they tear a hole in the roof and they lower their friend down. They don't lower him in front of the disciples. They don't lower him down in front of the religious. They don't lower him down in front of anybody but Jesus. They recognize Jesus is the one that we need. Jesus is the one with the answer. Jesus is the one that we're here for. And see, friends, you and I, we can go from one person to the next trying to find the answer, from one experience to another, from pursuing one experience after another. But a desperation and a dependence on Jesus is a willingness to settle for nothing less than an encounter with him. It's a willingness to settle for nothing less. Look in Mark chapter 15, verse 24. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And notice this, Jesus doesn't answer her. He's answered the disciples. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And he's identifying truth. If you look in Romans 11, you'll find it and see it even more. But he's identifying truth. He's identifying, I'm first here to reach Israel. This is the starting point of of God's demonstration and working of grace through human history, that it has a starting point. And the starting point is with Israel. But for this woman, it's disappointment on top of discouragement. But what, what we can learn from her, she's not deterred. This woman is not deterred. Not only has she come in, not only has Jesus not answered, that when Jesus finally speaks, he speaks something that would seem to be in a line with the disciples, saying, I'm not here for you. I'm not here for your need. I'm not here with the answer for you. He says, I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel. But look at how this woman responds. Her response is powerful. Verse 25. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. She came and knelt before him. She's disappointed. No doubt she's discouraged. She's still not even received a word from Jesus. And her answer seems to slip farther away by the moment. But it says she came and knelt before him. If you have a King James Version Bible, it doesn't say knelt. It says she came and she worshiped. She made her place of disappointment a place of worship. She made her place of waiting a place of worship. That she in a sense built an altar and she said, I am here until you bless me. I am desperate enough that nothing else will suffice. There's no answer outside of this room. There's no person beyond Jesus that is the answer I need. And so if the timing's not right, then I'm just going to stay right here and worship until the timing is right. Amen. Then my dependence is on you and you alone. She has reached her lowest depth, her darkest moment, and she chooses to worship. And see, friends, for you and for me, in our lives, as we go through our journey of life, we go through the circumstances, When you're facing doubts, you're facing questions with no answers, any number of things, the right response is always a worship response. It's always a worship response. Because worship has a way of reorient, reorienting our hearts and our minds and our faith, not around the need, not around the answer we're waiting for but around the nature of the one who's capable. It's reorienting our perspective around Jesus. Something we've, we've talked about here is that, that worship is an atmosphere of freedom. That worship is an atmosphere of freedom. We here at State College Assembly don't believe that the time of worship with Pastor Kyle and the worship team, as incredible and, and as blessed as we are with, with the talent we have, that it's not just a showcase of talent nor do we believe that worship here is merely a segment of the service to get to the offering, to get to the message, to get to the doors. We believe that worship, the atmosphere of worship, is an atmosphere of freedom because it's a place where we're acknowledging the authority and the nature of Jesus Christ. That you can walk through these doors with any number of needs. And there's any number of needs sitting here this morning, but you can walk through these doors with any number of needs. And it's in that moment when we're centered around Jesus That the needs become small and his greatness becomes great. That an atmosphere of worship is an atmosphere of freedom. There's times where people can be healed while we're worshiping. That while you might be thinking, this is not the song that I necessarily would have chosen, others could be finding absolute freedom and healing in that moment. An atmosphere of worship is an atmosphere of freedom. But I think that goes beyond just a physical healing in the moment. An atmosphere of worship is an atmosphere of freedom because it's an atmosphere that can free our minds from the perspectives that have limited what we have seen as being potentially possible with God. That it's a moment in worship that as we're coming before God in worship, as we're centering our hearts and our minds on worship before God, that worship has a way when we're singing and not just not just the words on the screen, but allowing it to, to really get to our hearts. To think about the words that we're singing and the things that we're expressing that when we are singing in that atmosphere of worship as an atmosphere of freedom, that it has a way to begin to strip off perspectives and doubt and questions that have been nagging, things that have kept you from seeing that how God, who God is, and things that have been que- causing you to question his faithfulness, things that have been causing you to question his love, things that have been causing you to question if he answers prayer. That it's a time of freedom that our minds can be renewed as we center our thoughts on Jesus. That's why we believe that an atmosphere of worship is an atmosphere of freedom. that I truly believe that worship can be a faith-building moment if we let it. And so this woman comes and she falls before Jesus and she centers her heart on him and she worships. There, I'm sure there are any, any number of doubts in her mind at that moment, any number of questions, but she chose to worship. And it's in her worship that the silence is broken. Look in verse 26. Jesus replied to the woman this time, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Jesus gives an answer, and it's certainly not the answer she was hoping for, certainly not the answer she was looking for. It almost, at first glance, seems to be another reason to push her away. But Jesus is using the term dog, and we can look at it, and we can get offended by the fact that Jesus called this woman a dog. What I would point out to you is we can get offended. The woman did not. Jesus, Jesus relates to people in all sorts of different ways. We see this through the Gospels, that he, he has a way of speaking the language that speaks to and connects with a person with where they're at. And in this common day, in Jesus' day, the Jews would call foreigners dogs. Foreigners would call Jews the dogs. It was a way of identifying someone who was foreign, someone who was not among them. But more than that, Jesus has just presented this woman with a parable. We often look at it as a rebuke, and it's only her faith that presses through. But Jesus has presented her with a parable. If you'll notice, he never said no. He said it's not right to take what the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And with every parable that Jesus presents, there is a deeper truth that's there for those who want it. It's a place, in this place where she almost seems justified to point to her need. To say, Jesus, but if you were just to see my daughter... If you were just to pause and look at all that I've already done, look at everything that I've gone through to try to get an answer from you, I'm not here for another story. I'm not here for a parable. I'm not here to be identified as a foreigner. Anything that she could have presented in the moment. But instead she recognized, as Jesus says with all parables, that there's a truth that's there for those who want it. That there's a truth that's laying open for the hungry heart. And this woman recognizes the parable that Jesus has pointed to. And she finds encouragement in what could even be considered discouraging. That he never said no, but that there were others who were first in line. That there were others that he had come to who were first. And one commentary even said that this woman chose to get near to God by clinging to the very hand that seemed stretched to push her away. And look what she says in verse 27. She says, yes, it is, Lord. She acknowledges he's right. She says, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Two things. She says, yes, it is, Lord Jesus, you're right. She says, Jesus, you're right. But the dogs are still completely dependent upon their master for everything. They're absolutely dependent on the one in who they've come. She says, I may be a foreigner, but I'm still absolutely dependent upon you. I may be a foreigner, but there is no one else besides you that has the answer that I need. And then secondly, she says, she says this, she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She says, even the slightest crumb casually overlooked by those to whom it was given would be the greatest delight to her heart. That the smallest crumb would provide the greatest answer that she's needing. That there is such a desperation and a position of dependence in her heart for a breakthrough that she says, Jesus, even just a crumb will suffice. Just the smallest answer, just the smallest touch, just the smallest breakthrough will provide the answer that I'm looking for, that just a crumb of his power and his grace from his table would suffice. Friends, we prepare ourselves for the greatest answers and the greatest mercies of God when we see ourselves as being the least of these and able to find the greatest benefit from the smallest working of God. That it's a dependence upon him for any and every answer. And look with me in Mark chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 15, verse 28, as we finish the story. It says, Then Jesus said to her woman, You have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. He said, You have great faith. The story started that it seemed to me as if Jesus had hidden his face, had hidden his presence, had tucked away. And now he gathers her with such a kindness and an openness. And a speaking of the word, the answer comes. That at just a word, just a crumb that's given, the answer is received and her child is healed. But notice what Jesus says. He says, you have great faith. We've seen this repeatedly through the gospel of Mark that Jesus is amazed at two things, great faith and no faith. And oftentimes the great faith was found on those who were on the outside looking in. And the no faith was often with his disciples in their own boat. But he is amazed at great faith and no faith. And he identifies for this woman that it was her faith that was the avenue that he, he used to bring healing to her daughter. And in Mark's gospel, if you flip back to Mark for just a moment, Mark chapter 7, verse 29, Jesus says this. He says, for such a reply you may go. He says, for such a reply. Other translations say it this way. They say, for this, Jesus says, for this statement. For this statement of faith, your answer has been given. A crumb has been given and your daughter is healed. For this statement of faith. And I would ask you this morning, what statements of faith or lack of faith do you make about God and to others about your situation? What statement of faith do you make when facing impossible odds or facing circumstances that have yet to have an answer? What statement of faith does your life make? Does it show an an unshakable desperation and dependence upon Jesus? Or does it show something else? What statement of faith does your life make? Her perseverance, her persistence, her unwavering faith positioned her to receive. And friends, this morning, as you're here, we're going to close in just a moment. But as you're here, I would just encourage you and remind you that God cares greatly about your need. He cares greatly about your life. He cares greatly about the things that burden your heart. And his desire is to answer. And if for nothing else this morning, as you look at the story we've read through and the different things we've pointed out, be reminded that God cares a delaying answer does not mean, does not equate to no care in your life. That he cares, and he sees, and he listens.